0: Hello and welcome to this Wednesday, August 7th, 2019 episode of The Law of Success Mastermind. Now, tonight's episode is The Habit of Doing More Than Paid For, Part 2 of 2. I have just found out what this man is doing. He is putting himself ahead in the world by first helping others to get ahead. In this brief statement, he had epitomized the most important part of my philosophy on the subject of success. It is literally true that you can succeed best and quickest by helping others to succeed. Some ten years ago, when I was engaged in the advertising business, I built my entire clientele by the application of the fundamentals upon which this lesson is founded. By having my name placed on the follow-up lists, of various mail-order houses, I received their their sales literature. When I received a sales letter or a booklet or a folder which I believed I could improve, I went right to work on it and made the improvement, then sent it back to the firm that had sent it to me, with a letter stating that this was but a trifling sample of what I could do, that there were plenty of other good ideas where that one came from, and that I would be glad to render regular service for a monthly fee. Invariably, this brought an order for my services. On one occasion, I remember that the firm was dishonest enough to appropriate my, to appropriate my idea and use it without paying me for it, but this turned out to be an advantage to me in this way. A member of the firm who was familiar with the transaction started another business and as a result of the work I had done for his former associates, for which I was not paid, he engaged me to serve him on a basis that paid me more than double the amount I would have realized from his original firm. Thus the law of compensation gave back to me, and with compound interest added, that which I had lost by rendering service to those who were dishonest. If I were looking for a profitable field of employment today, I would find it by again putting into action this plan of rewriting sales literature as a means of creating a market for my services. Perhaps I would find others who would appropriate my ideas without paying for them, but by and large people would not do this for the simple reason that it would be more profitable to them to deal fairly with me and thereby avail themselves of my continued services. Several years ago, I was invited to deliver a lecture before the students of the Palmer School at Davenport, Iowa. My manager completed arrangements for me to accept the invitation under the regular terms in effect at that time, which were $100 for the lecture and my traveling expenses. When I arrived at Davenport, I found a reception committee awaiting me at the depot, and that evening I was given one of the warmest welcomes I had ever received during my public career. Up to that point, I met many delightful people from whom I gathered many valuable facts that were of benefit to me. Therefore, when I was asked to make out my expense account, so the school could give me a check, I told them that I had received my pay many times over, by that which I had learned while I was there. I refused my fee and returned to my office in Chicago, feeling well repaid for the trip. The following morning, Dr. Palmer went before the 2,000 students of his school and announced that I had said Announced what I had said about feeling repaid by what I had learned, and added, In the twenty years that I have been conducting this school, I have had scores of speakers address the student body, but this is the first time I ever knew a man to refuse his fee because he felt that he had been repaid for his services in other ways. This man is the editor of a national magazine, and I advise every one of you to subscribe for that magazine. Because such a man as this must have much that each of you will need when you go into the field and offer your services. By the middle of that week, I had received more than $6,000 for subscriptions to the magazine, of which I was editor. And during the following two years, these same 2,000 students and their friends sent in more than $50,000 for subscriptions. Tell me, if you can, how or where I could have invested $100 as profitably as this by refusing to accept my $100 fee and thereby setting the law of increasing returns to work in my behalf. Okay, so this was $100 for his... That was his fee. This was in, like, the 1920s. This was published in 1928. So you've got to take that into consideration that he earned... $6,000, $50,000, $6,000, $50,000, you know, 6000 initially, and then over time, 50000 over two years. That's, I think, about 14.5 times multiplier. So that's a considerable chunk of money. <laughs> Tell me, if you can, how or where I could have invested... as profitably as this by refusing to accept my $100 fee and thereby setting the law of increasing returns to work in my behalf. You can't. He couldn't have. That's why I'm doing these videos. The law of increasing returns. We go through two important periods in this life. One is that period during which we are gathering, classifying, and organizing knowledge, and the other is that period during which we are struggling for recognition. We must first learn something, which requires more effort than most of us are willing to put into the job. But after we have learned much that can be of useful service to others, we are still confronted with the problem of convincing them that we can serve them. Yep. One of the most important reasons why we should always be not only ready, but willing to render service, is the fact that every time we do so, we gain thereby another opportunity to prove to someone that we have ability. We go just one more step toward gaining the necessary recognition that we must all have. Instead of saying to the world, show me the color of your money and I will show you what I can do, reverse the rule and say, let me show you the color of my service so that I may take a look at the color of your money if you like my service. In 1917, a certain woman who was then nearing the 50 year miles post of life was working as a stenographer at $15 a week. Judging by the salary, she must have been none too competent in that work. Now note this change. Last year, this same woman cleared a little over $100,000 on the lecture platform. What bridged that mighty chasm between these two earning capacities? You ask and I answer the habit of performing more service and better service than that for which she was paid, thereby taking advantage of the law of increasing returns. This woman is well known throughout the country, as she is now a prominent lecturer on the subject of applied psychology. Let me show you how she harnessed the law of increasing returns. First, she goes into a city and delivers a series of 15 free lectures. All may attend who will, without money and without price. During the, deliver of, during the delivery of these 15 lectures, she has the opportunity of selling herself to her audience. At the end of the series, she announces the formation of a class for which she charges $25 per student. That's all there is to her plan. No man can rise to fame and fortune without carrying others along with him. It simply cannot be done. Where she is commanding a small That's all there is to her plan. Where she is commanding a small fortune for a year's work, there are scores of much more proficient lecturers who are barely getting enough from their work to pay their expenses, simply because they have not yet familiarized themselves with the fundamentals upon which this lesson is based, as she has done. Now I would like to have you stop right here and answer this question. If a a fifty-year-old woman who has no extraordinary qualifications, can harness the law of increasing returns and make it raise her from the position of stenographer at $15 a week to that of lecturer at over $100,000 a year, why cannot you apply this same law so that it will give you advantages that you do not now possess? Never mind what is to come in the remainder of this lesson until you have answered this question and answered it as it should be answered. You are struggling, either meekly or earnestly, to make a place for yourself in the world. Perhaps you are exerting enough effort to bring you success of the highest order. If that effort were coupled with and supported by the law of increasing returns, for this reason, you owe it to yourself to find out just how you can apply this law to best advantage. Now, go back to that question again, for I am determined that you shall not pass it by lightly, without giving yourself the benefit of at least trying to answer it. In other words, there is no mistaking the fact that you are being brought face to face with a question that vitally affects your future and if you evade it the fault will be with you. You may lay this lesson aside after you have read it and it is your privilege to do so without making any attempt to profit by it, but if you do so You will never again be able to look at yourself in a mirror without being haunted by the feeling that you have deliberately cheated yourself. Perhaps this is telling the truth in an undiplomatic way. But when you purchase this course on the law of success, you did so because you wanted facts and you are getting them without the embellishment of apology after you have finished this lesson, if you will go back and review the lessons on initiative and leadership and enthusiasm, you will better understand those lessons. Those lessons and this one clearly establish the necessity of taking the initiative, following it with aggressive action, and doing more than you are paid to do. If you will burn the fundamentals of these three lessons into your consciousness, you will be a changed person. And I make this statement regardless of who you are or what your calling may be. If this plain language has made you angry, I am glad, for it indicates that you can be moved. Now, if you would profit by the counsel of one who... Has made many more mistakes than you have ever made, and for that reason, learned a few of the fundamental truths of life. Harness this anger and focus it on yourself until it drives you forth to render the service of which you are capable. That's what I'm doing. That's why my mission is to feed, house, and empower, or at least help be a part of to feed, house, and empower one billion people. To live, work, play, love, learn, and pay pay it forward with happiness, health, and selfless abundance. That's why I'm doing this. I have what I need, and I could have what I needed. But I want to pay it forward with gratitude. <laughs> and that's why I'm doing this. It's like I don't have to. I could do some other things that... People would never recognize me because I'm a pretty, I like to just be by myself and stuff like that. But I'm doing this because there's a need for this. This is my most popular podcast. This has like 10 times more listens than my other podcasts. And it's just all organic. If you will do this, you can collect a king's ransom as your reward. Now let us turn your attention to still another important feature of this habit of performing more service and better service than that for which we are paid. Namely, the fact that we can develop this habit without asking for permission to do so. Such service may be rendered through our own initiative, without the consent of any person. You do not have to consult those to whom you render the service, for it is a privilege over which you have entire control. There are many things you could do that would tend to promote your interests, but most of them require the cooperation or the consent of others. If you render less service than that for which you are paid, you must do so by leave of the purchaser of the service, or the market for the service will soon cease. I want you to get the full significance of this right prerogative, which you have to render more service and better service than that for which you are paid. For this places squarely upon your shoulders the responsibility of rendering such service, and if you fail to do so, you haven't a plausible excuse to offer or an alibi upon which to fall back if you fail in the achievement of your definite chief aim in life. One of the most essential, yet the hardest truths that I have had to learn is that every person should be his own hardest taskmaster. We are all fine builders of alibis and creators of excuses in support of our shortcomings. We are not seeking facts and truth as they are, but as we wish them to be. We prefer honeyed words of flattery to those of cold, unbiased truth, wherein lies the weakest spot of the man-animal. Furthermore, we are up in arms against those who dare to uncover the truth for our benefit. One of the most severe shocks I received in the early part of my public career was the knowledge that men are still being crucified for the high crime of telling the truth. I recall an experience I had some ten years ago with a man who had written a book advertising his business school. He submitted this book to me and paid me to review it and give him my candid opinion of it. I reviewed the book with painstaking care then did my duty by showing him wherein I believed the book was weak. Here, I learned a great lesson, for that man became so angry that he has never forgiven me for allowing him to look at his book through my eyes. When he asked me to tell him frankly what criticism I had to offer of the book, what he really meant was that I should tell him what I saw in the book that I could compliment. That's human nature for you. We court flattery more than we do the truth. I know because I am human, all of which is in preparation for the unkindest cut of all, that I am duty-bound to inflict upon you. Namely, to suggest that you have not done as well as you might have done for the reason that you have not applied a sufficient amount of truth set out in Lesson 7 on self-control to charge yourself with your own mistakes and shortcomings. Do this. To do this takes self-control and plenty of it. If you paid some person who had the ability and the courage to do it $100 dollars To strip you of your vanity and conceit and love for flattery so that you might see the weakest part of your makeup, the price would be reasonable enough. We go through life stumbling and falling and struggling to our knees and struggling and falling some more, making asses of ourselves and going down finally in defeat largely because we either neglect or flatly refuse to learn the truth about ourselves. Since I have come to discover some of my own weaknesses through my work of helping others discover theirs, I blush with shame when I take a retrospective view of life and think how ridiculous I must have seemed in the eyes of those who could see me as I wouldn't see myself. We parade before the enlarged shadows of our own vanity and imagine that those shadows are our real selves, while the few knowing souls with whom we meet stand in the background and look at us with pity or with scorn. Hold on a minute, I am not through with you yet. You have paid me to delve into the depths of your real self and give you an introspective inventory of what is there and I am going to do the job right, as nearly as I can. Not only have you been fooling yourself as to the real cause of your failures of the past, but you have tried to hang these causes on the door of someone else. When things did not go to suit you, instead of accepting full responsibility for the cause, you have said, Oh, hang this job. I don't like the way they are treating me, so I am going to quit. Don't deny it. Now let me whisper a little secret in your ear. A secret which I have had to gather from grief and heartaches and unnecessary punishment of the hardest sort. Instead of quitting the job because there were obstacles to master and difficulties to be overcome, you you should have faced the facts and then you would have known that life itself is just one long series of mastery of difficulties and obstacles. This measure This measure of a man may be taken very accurately by the extent to which he adapts himself to his environment and makes it his business to accept responsibility for every adversity with which he meets, whether the the adversity grows out of a cause within his control or not. Now, if you feel that I have panned you rather severely, have pity on me. O fellow wayfarer, for you surely must know that I have had to punish myself more sorely than I have punished you before I learned the truth that I am here passing on to you for your use and guidance. I have a few enemies. Thank God for them. For they have been vulgar and merciless. Enough to say some things about me that forced me to rid myself of some of my most serious shortcomings. Mainly those which I did not know I possessed. I have profited by the criticism of these enemies without having to pay them for their services and dollars. Although I have paid in other ways. That's legitimately for me too. I. I this book is incredible. However, it was not until some years ago that I caught sight of some of my most glaring faults which were brought to my attention as I studied Emerson's law essay on compensation. Particularly the following part of it. Our strength grows out of our weaknesses. Not until we are pricked and stung and sorely shot at Awakens the indignation which arms itself with secret forces. A great man is always willing to be little. While he sits on the cushion of advantage, he goes to sleep. When he is pushed, tormented, defeated, he has a chance to learn something. He has been put on his wits. For his manhood, he has gained facts, learned his ignorance, is cured of the insanity of conceit, has got moderation and real skill. The wise man always throws himself on the side of his assailants. It is more his interest than it is theirs to find his weak point. Blame is safer than praise. I hate to be defended in a newspaper. As long as all that is said is said against me, I feel a certain assurance of success. But as soon as honeyed words of praise are spoken of me, I feel as one that lies unprotected before his enemies. Study this, the philosophy of the immortal Emerson, for it may serve as a modifying force that will temper your mettle and prepare you for the battles of life. As carbon tempers the steel. If you are a very young person, you need to study it all the more. For it often requires the stern realities of many years of experience to prepare one to assimilate and apply this philosophy. Better that you should understand these great truths as a result of my undiplomatic presentation of them than to be forced to gather them from the less sympathetic sources of cold experience. Experience is a teacher that knows no favorites. When I permit you to profit by the truths I have gathered from the teachings of this cold and unsympathetic teacher called experience, I am doing my best to show you favoritism, which reminds me somewhat of the times when my father used to do his duty by me in the woodshed, always starting with his bit of encouraging philosophy. Son, this hurts me worse than it does you. Thus, we approach the close of this lesson without having exhausted the possibilities of the subject. Nay, without having more than scratched the surface of it. There comes to my mind the story of a romance of long ago, through which I can leave in your mind the main import of this lesson. This story had its setting in the city of Antioch, in ancient Rome, 2,000 years ago, when the great city of Jerusalem and all the land of Judah were under the oppressive heel of Rome, the star figure of the story was a young Jew by the name of Ben Hur, who was falsely accused of a crime and sentenced to hard labor at the galley's oar, chained to a bench in the galley, and being forced to tug warily on the oars, Ben Hur developed a powerful body. Little did his tormentors know that out of his punishment would grow the strength with which he would one day gain his freedom. Perhaps Ben-Hur himself had no such hopes. Then came the day of the chariot races, the day that was destined to break the chains that bound Ben-Hur to the oars of the galley and give him his freedom. One span of the horses was without a driver. In desperation, the owner sought the aid of the young slave because of his mighty arms and begged him to take the place of the missing driver. As Ben-Hur picked up the reins, a mighty cry went up from the onlookers. Look, look, those arms, where did you get them? They howled, and Ben-Hur answered, At the galley's oar. The race was on. With those mighty arms, Ben-Hur calmly drove that charging span of horses on to victory, victory that won for him his freedom. Life itself is a great chariot race, and the victory goes only to those who have developed the strength of character and determination and will-power to win. What matters it what matters it that we develop this strength through cruel confinement at the galleys or as long as we use it so that it brings us finally to victory and freedom. It is an unvarying law that strength grows out of resistance. If we pity the poor poor blacksmith who swings a five-pound hammer all day long, We must also admire the wonderful arm that he develops in doing it. Because of the dual constitution of all things, in labor as in life, there can be no cheating, says Emerson. The thief steals from himself, the the swindler swindles himself. For the real price of labor is knowledge and virtue, whereof, whereof wealth and credit are signs. The signs, like paper money, may be counterfeited or stolen, but that which they represent, namely knowledge and virtue, cannot be counterfeited or stolen. Henry Ford receives thousands, receives 15,000 letters a week from people who are begging for a part of his wealth. Yet how few of these poor ignorant souls understand that Ford's real wealth is not measured by the dollars he has in the bank nor the factories he owns, but the reputation he has gained through the rendering of useful service at a reasonable price. And how did he gain that reputation? Certainly not by rendering as little service as possible and collecting for all he could filch from, from the purchasers. The very warp and woof of Ford's business philosophy is this, give the people the best product at the lowest p- price possible something Tesla is doing today. When other automobile manufacturers raise their prices, Ford lowers his. When other uh, employers lower wages, Ford increases them. What has happened? This policy has placed the law of increasing returns back of Ford so effectively that he has become the richest and most powerful man in the world. Oh, you foolish and short-sighted seekers after wealth who are returning from the daily chase empty-handed. Why do you not take a lesson from men like Ford? Why do you not reverse your philosophy and give an order that you may get? I am finishing this lesson on Christmas Eve. In the room next to my study, our children are decorating their Christmas tree, and the rhythm of their voices falls as music upon my ears. They are happy not alone because they expect to receive, but for the deeper reason that they have presents hidden away which they expect to give. From the window of my study, I can see the neighbor's children as they too are gleefully engaged in preparing for this wonderful event. There are no lazy men. What may appear to be a lazy man Is only an unfortunate person who has not found the work for which he is best suited. Throughout the civilized world, millions of people are preparing to celebrate the birth of this Prince of Peace, who, more than any other man, set forth the reasons why it is more blessed to give than to receive, and why enduring happiness comes not from possessing material wealth, but from Rendering service to humanity. It seems a queer coincidence that the completion of this particular lesson should have happened on Christmas Eve. Yet I am glad that it has, for this has provided me with sufficient justification for reminding you that nowhere in the entire history of civilization could I have found stronger support of the fundamentals of this lesson than may be found in the Sermon of the Mount, in the book of Matthew. Christianity is one of the greatest and most far-reaching influences in the world today, and I hardly need to apologize for reminding you that the tenet, tenets of Christ's philosophy are in absolute harmony with the fundamentals upon which this lesson in the main is founded. As I see the faces of the children and watch the hurrying crowds of belated Christmas shoppers, all radiant from with splen- the splendor of the spirit of giving, I cannot help wishing that every eve was Christmas Eve, for then this would be a better world in which the struggle for existence would be reduced to a minimum, and hatred and strife outlawed. Life is but a short span of years at best. Like a candle, we are lighted, flicker for, for a moment, and then go out. If we were placed here for the purpose of laying a pot laying up treasures for use in a life that lies beyond the dark shadow of death, may it not be possible that we can best collect these treasures by rendering all the service we can to all the people we can, in a loving spirit of kindness and sympathy. I hope you agree with the philosophy. Here this lesson must end, but it is by no means completed. Where I lay down the chain of thought, it is now your duty to take it up and develop it in your own way and to your own benefit. By the very nature of the subject of this lesson, it can never be finished, for it leads into the heart of all human activities. Its purpose is to cause you to take the fundamentals upon which it is based and use them as a stimulus that which that will cause your mind to unfold, thereby releasing the latent forces that are yours. This lesson was not written for the purpose of teaching you, but it was intended as a means of causing you to teach yourself one of the great truths of life. It was intended as a source of education. In the true sense of educing, drawing out, developing from within those forces of mind which are available for your use. When you deliver the best service of which you are capable, striving each time to excel all your previous efforts, you are making use of the highest form of education. Therefore, when you render more service and better service than that for which you are paid, You, more than anyone else, are profiting by the effort. It is only through the delivery of such service that mastery in your chosen field of endeavor can be attained. For this reason, you should make it a part of your definite chief aim to endeavor to surpass all previous records in all that you do. Let this become a part of your daily habits and follow it with the same regularity with which you eat your meals. Make it your business to render more service and better service than that for which you are paid. And lo, before you realize what has happened, you will find that the world is willingly paying you for more than you do compound interest upon compound interest is the rate that you will be paid for such service just how this pyramiding of gains takes place is left entirely to you to determine now what are you doing what are you going to do with that which you have learned from this lesson and when and how and why This lesson can be of no value to you unless it moves you to adopt and use the knowledge it has brought you. Knowledge becomes power only through organization and use. Do not forget this. You can never become a leader without doing more than you are paid for. And you cannot become successful without developing leadership in your chosen occupation. There is always room for the man who can be relied upon to deliver the goods when he said he would. Knowledge becomes power only through organization and use. Do not forget this. You can never become a leader without doing more than you are paid for, and you cannot become successful without developing leadership in your chosen occupation. So, there's still more to this chapter as a, an after-the-lesson visit with the author. It is on, it is the mastermind, an after-the-lesson visit. So, now I'm going to read that. A power that can bring you whatever you want on this earth. This is why I started this, the Law of Success Mastermind. Success is achieved through the application of power. In the picture at the top of this page, you see two forms of power. At the left, you see physical power produced by nature with the aid of organized raindrops pouring over Niagara Falls. Man has harnessed this form of power. At the right you see another, and a much more intensive form of power, produced through the harmonious coordination of thought in the minds of men. Observe that the word harmonious has been emphasized in this picture. Oh, it has been emphasized. In this picture, you see a group of men seated at the director's table in a modern business office. The powerful figure rising above the group represents the mastermind which may be created wherever men blend their minds in a spirit of perfect harmony, with some definite objective in view. Study this picture. It interprets the greatest power known to man. With the aid of the mind, man has discovered many interesting facts about the earth on which he lives, the air and the ether that fill the endless space about him, and the millions of other planets and heavenly bodies that float through space. With the aid of a little mechanical contravance, which his mind conceived, called a spectroscope, man has discovered at a distance of 93 million miles the nature of the substances of which the sun is made. We have lived through the Stone Age, the Iron Age, the Copper Age, the religious fanatic age, the scientific research age, the industrial age, and we now and we enter now the age of thought. Out of the spoils of the dark ages through which man has passed, he has saved much material that is sound food for thought. Well for more than ten thousand years, the battle between ignorance and superstition and fear on the one side and intelligence on the other side has raged man has picked up some useful knowledge among other fragments of useful knowledge gathered by man he has discovered and classified the 83 elements of which all physical matter consists by study and analysis and comparison man has discovered the bigness of the material things in the universe as they are represented by the suns and stars, some of them over ten million times as large as the earth on which he lives. On the other hand, man has discovered the littleness of which, by reducing matter to molecules, atoms, and finally to the smallest known particle, the electron, an atom is so inconceivably small that a grain of sand contains millions of them. The molecule is made up of atoms, which are said to be little particles of matter that revolve around each other in one continuous circuit at lightning speed, very much as the earth and other planets whirl around the sun in an endless circuit. The atom, in turn, is made up of electrons, which are constantly in rapid motion. Thus, it is said, that in every drop of water and every grain of sand, the entire principle upon which the whole universe operates is duplicated. How marvelous! How stupendous! How do we know these things to be true? Through the aid of the mind. You may gather some slight idea of the magnitude of it all the next time you eat a beefsteak. By remembering that the steak on your plate The plate itself and the table on which you are eating and the silverware with which you are eating are all in final analysis made of the exactly the same material. Electrons. Not entirely sure if that's accurate, but atoms at least. In the physical or material world, Whether one is looking at the largest star that floats through the heavens or the smallest grain of sand to be found on Earth, the object under observation is but an organized collection of molecules, atoms, and electrons. An electron is an inseparable form of power made up of okay in the book okay it's got a negative electric charge electrons have a negative electric charge they don't have a positive electric charge Man knows much about the physical facts of the universe. The next great. Sorry, my laptop almost died. Okay. The next great scientific discovery will be the fact which already exists that every human brain is both a broadcasting and a receiving station. That every thought vibration released by the brain may be picked up and interpreted by all other brains that are in harmony or in tune with the rate of vibration of the broadcasting brain. Sort of like I'm broadcasting to you right now. (laughs) How did man acquire the knowledge that he possessed concerning the physical laws of this earth? How did he learn what has taken place before his time and during his uncivilized period? He gathered this knowledge by turning back the pages of nature's Bible, there viewing the unimpeachable evidence of millions of years of struggle among animals of a lower intelligence. By turning back the great stone pages, man has uncovered the bones, skeletons, footprints, and other unmistakable evidence which Mother Nature has held for his inspection throughout unbelievable periods of time. Now man is about to turn his attention to another section of Nature's Bible, the one wherein has been written a history of the great mental struggle that has taken place in the realm of thought. This page is represented by the boundless ether which has picked up and still carries every thought vibration that has ever released from the mind of man. This great page in Nature's Bible is one that no human being has been able to tamper with. Its records are positive and soon they may be clearly interpreted. No interpolations by man have been permitted of the authenticity of the story written on this page, there can be no doubt. Thanks to education, meaning the unfolding, adducing, drawing out, and developing from within of the human mind, nature's Bible is now being interpreted. The story of man's long, perilous struggle upward has been written on the pages of this, the greatest of all Bibles. All who, have been, all who have partly conquered the six basic fears described in another author's visit in this series and who have successfully conquered superstition and ignorance may read the records that have been written in nature's Bible. To all others, this privilege is denied. For this reason, there are probably fewer than 1,000 people in the entire world at this time who are in even the primary grade as far as the reading of this Bible is concerned. In the entire world, there are probably fewer than 100 people today who know anything about or who have ever heard of the chemistry of the mind through which two or more minds, may be blended in a spirit of perfect harmony in such a manner that there is born a third mind possessing the superhuman power to read the story of the vibration of thought as it has been written and now exists in the imperishable records of the ether. And over the last 90 years, since this book, 91 since this book was published, boy has it blended with all of our minds. The newly discovered radio principle has shut the mouths of the doubting Thomases and sent the scientists scurrying into new fields of experimentation. When they emerge from this field of research, they will show us that the mind as we understand it today, as compared to the mind of tomorrow, is about the same as comparing the intelligence of a pillow to that of a professor of biology who has read the entire lifeline of animal life, from the amoeba on up to man. Come for a short visit with a few of the powerful men now living who are making use of power created through the blending in a spirit of harmony of two or more minds. We will bring with three well-known men who are known to be men of great achievement We will begin with three well-known men who are known to be men of great achievement in their respective fields of endeavor. Their names are Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, and Harvey Firestone. Of the three, Henry Ford is the most powerful, having reference to economic power. Mr. Ford is the most powerful man now living on earth and is believed to be the most powerful who ever lived. So great is his power that he may have anything of a physical nature that he desires or its equivalent. Millions of dollars to him are but playthings, no harder to acquire than the grains of sand with which the child builds sand tunnels." Mr. Edison has such a keen insight into Mother Nature's Bible that he has harnessed and combined, for the good of man, more of nature's laws than any other man who has ever lived. It was he who brought together the point of a needle and a piece of wax in such a way that they record and preserve the human voice. It was he who first made the lightning serve to light our houses and streets through the aid of the incandescent light. It was he who made the camera record and produce all sorts of motion through the modern moving picture apparatus. Mr. Firestone's industrial achievement is so well known that it needs no comment. He has made, billion, he has made dollars multiply themselves so rapidly that his name has become a byword wherever automobiles are operated. All three men began their business and professional careers with no capital and but little schooling of the nature usually referred to as education perhaps mr ford's beginning was by far the most humble of the three cursed with poverty retarded by lack of even the most elementary form of schooling and handicapped by ignorance in many forms he has mastered all of these in the un inconceivably short period of 25 years thus might we briefly describe the achievements of three well-known, successful men of power. But we have been dealing with effect only. The true philosopher wishes to know something of the cause which produced these desirable effects. It is a matter of public knowledge that Mr. Ford, Mr. Edison, and Mr. Firestone are close personal friends that they go away to the woods once a year for a period of recuperation and rest. But it is not generally known. It is doubtful, if these three men themselves even know it, that there exists between the three men a bond of harmony out of which has grown a master mind. That is being used by each of the three, a mind of superhuman ability. That has the capacity to tune in on forces with which most men are to no extent familiar. Let us repeat the statement that out of the blending and harmonizing of two or more minds, 12 or 13 minds appear to be the most favorable number, may be produced a mind which has the capacity to tune in on the vibrations of the ether and pick up from that source kindred thoughts. On any subject. Through the principle of harmony of minds, Ford, Edison, and Firestone have created a mastermind that now supplements the efforts of each of the three. And whether consciously or unconsciously, this mastermind is the cause of the the success of each of the three. There is no other answer to their attainment of great power and their far-reaching success in their respective fields of endeavor and this is true despite the fact that neither of them may be conscious of the power that they have created or the manner in which they have done so. In the city of Chicago live six powerful men known as the Big Six. These six men are said to be the most powerful group of men in the Middle West. It is said that their combined income totals more than $25 million a year. Every man in the group began in the most humble of circumstances. Their names are W.M. Wrigley Jr., who owns the Wrigley chewing gum business, and whose income is said to be over $15 million a year. John R. Thompson, who owns the chain of Thompson self-help, lunchrooms throughout the country, Mr. Lasker, who owns the Lord and Thomas Advertising Agency, and Mr. McCullough, who owns the largest express business in the world, and Mr. Ritchie and Mr. Hertz, who own the yellow taxicab business of the country. There is nothing startling about a man who does nothing more than become a millionaire, as a rule. However, there is something connected with the financial success of these particular millionaires that is more startling for it is well known that there exists between them a bond of friendship out of which has grown the condition of harmony that produces a master mind. These six men, whether by accident or design, have blended their minds in such a way that the mind of each has been supplemented by a superhuman power known as a master mind, and that mind has brought each of them more worldly gain than any person could possibly use to advantage. The law upon which the principle of a master mind operates was discovered by Christ when he surrounded himself with twelve disciples and created the first thirteen club of the world. Despite the fact that one of the thirteen, Judas, broke the chain of harmony, sufficient seed was sown during the period of harmony that originally existed between these thirteen people to ensure the continuation of the greatest and most far-reaching philosophy known to the inhabitants of this earth. Many millions of people believe themselves to possess wisdom. Many of these do possess wisdom in certain elementary stages, but no man may possess real wisdom without the aid of the power known as a master mind, and such a mind cannot be created except through the principle of blending, in harmony of two or more minds. Through many years of practical experimentation, it has been found that thirteen minds, when blended in a spirit of perfect harmony, produce the most practical results upon this principle whether consciously or unconsciously is founded all of the great industrial and commercial successes that are so abundant in this age the word merger is becoming one of the most popular words in the newspaper parlance because hardly a day goes by that one may not read of some big industrial commercial financial or railroad merger slowly the world is beginning to learn in a few in a very few minds only, that through friendly alliance and cooperation, great power may be developed. The successful business and industrial financial enterprises are those managed by leaders who either consciously or unconsciously apply the principle of coordinated effort described in this article. If you would be a great leader in any undertaking, surround yourself with other minds that can be blended in a spirit of cooperation so that they act and function as one. If you can grasp the principle and apply it, you have, for your efforts, whatever you want on this earth. I like to see a man proud of his country, and I like to see him so live that his country is proud of him. Lincoln, employers are always on the lookout for a man who does a better job of any sort than is customary, whether it be wrapping a package, writing a letter, or closing a sale. Thank you for another episode of the Law of Success Mastermind. I would appreciate your support. I have developed something magical. It starts with the Happy Hero Studio. Happyherostudio.com. You can put a deposit down at happyherodeposit.com. That forwards you to our square up page and you can do a secure checkout on that page. It's a thousand dollar deposit. That's 1%. The total cost is $100,000. But happyherostudio.com tells you what it's all about. Thank you for another episode. I appreciate you.